Take your Bibles, if you would, with me this morning. Open them uh, one more time in this uh, occasional series called Woven, where we look at whole books of the Bible in one short stretch. Open your Bibles to the Old Testament prophetic book of Daniel. If you are using uh, one of the little black Bibles under a seat uh, in front of you, you'll find Daniel starting on page 690. Um, You can swipe to it on your phones. I always like to have a physical copy of the Bible open in my lap if I can. Keeps me from being distracted by other notifications and things. And uh, I just remember stuff better when I see it on paper for some reason. So if you have a physical copy of the Bible, open it uh, to Daniel chapter 7. If you have a digital copy, that's okay too. Uh, Open it to to Daniel also. You may want to stick a finger in Daniel chapter 7 uh, as we get started, but we're going to work our way through most of the book this morning. Two hundred and forty-seven years, forty-six presidents, twelve thousand five hundred and six congressmen and women. That's about a summary of the United States government on a federal level. One thousand ninety-six years, sixty-five monarchs, thirteen of them since unification of the United Kingdom in seventeen o seven. This is a short summary of all those who have served in leadership uh, in England and the United Kingdom. Other great empires, Rome, lasted 449 years, had some 99 emperors. They like to kill each other a lot, assassinations and whatnot. 99 different emperors over 449 years. Even greater than these, though, maybe over 200, or excuse me, over 2,500 years. And about 125 kings and pharaohs was the nation of, uh, or, or the kingdom, the empire of ancient Egypt. Out of all of these that are been mentioned. How many do you know well? How many uh, of these do you actually care about? Presidents, monarchs, pharaohs, emperors. How influential were their kingdoms, their rules, their legacies to your life? Now, some of them are quite influential, sure, but statistically, it's unlikely that your life has been impacted by the vast majority of these who have come and gone, who have led and died and passed their kingdoms on to others. Yet in their day, these are some of the most important and most powerful people in the entire world. History has a way of humbling us to see often just how small we are, how short our our lives are, and, and really in the grand scheme of things, how little impact we actually make. But history also has a way of showing us just how impactful one person can be. Consider among these Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Queen Elizabeth II, George Washington, each leaders of their own nations, but also world leaders, world shapers, world influencers, and yet all human. Either by their death or by resignation, their rule ended, their administrations were dissolved, and another one took their place. What are we to make, then, of the kings and kingdoms of this world? How are we to understand them and their place in the grand scheme of human history? What do all of these matter, if anything at all? The book of Daniel, this Old Testament prophetic book, follows primarily the life of one Jewish man in exile in Babylon as a servant to the king in just such a kingdom as these, the the mightiest kingdom of its day in Babylon, and in fact, one of the mightiest kings that Babylon had ever seen in Nebuchadnezzar. By his life, Daniel demonstrates that there is but one true king, there is one true kingdom, and there is one true kingdom citizenry. That one true king is not Nebuchadnezzar, nor Alexander, nor Julius, nor 
Queen Elizabeth II. That one kingdom is not Greece or Rome or Babylon or Great Britain or even the United States. And that citizenry is not the people that live there. But that one great king is not of human origin. His kingdom is not of human contrivance. And it's not of human effort to maintain it. But that one true king, Yahweh, the God of the cosmos, has one kingdom that encompasses all of time and space. And Daniel demonstrates that he cares for his people who are loyal first and ultimately to him. Daniel is a book about kings and kingdoms and the true, one true king and his one true kingdom. As we approach books this way, whole books of the Bible, it helps for us to understand the context of that book. These, these uh, books in our library of Scripture, the Bible, did not just plop out of heaven one day all uh, together all at once, but were composed over the course of about 1,500 years by uh, near to 40 human authors carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote and recorded events and words from the Lord for His people. So we need to understand uh, who the author, the human author of these books is that's being carried along by the Holy Spirit and the world to which they were writing. The author of the book of Daniel is presumed to be the main character of the story, Daniel. Now, nowhere in the, in the book does it say, I, Daniel, wrote all these things down. But in the second half of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12, there's a lot of first-person narration, if you will. I, Daniel, saw this and this and this take place. Daniel was himself a, a, Jewish, a young Jewish man of noble lineage who was taken into exile by Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, in 605 BC. This is still uh, about 20 years before the uh, city of Jerusalem and the temple would be uh, sacked and and destroyed and everything in it. But uh, Daniel was carried off about 20 years earlier into exile. The dates of the material in Daniel span from about 605 BC during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon to just after 586 BC and the decree of Cyrus, the Persian king, Uh, allowing Jews to return back to Judah to rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem. It seems that Daniel recorded all that took place. He recorded these events himself or otherwise passed them along to somebody who, who recorded them for him. Some modern scholars would like to date the visionary material of the second half of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12, to a much later date in history, sometime in the second century B.C., Uh, Due to the specificity of detail that's given about the rise of the Greek Empire and various kings and leaders that would lead during that time, specifically the detail about the great antagonist of the Jews in the time before Christ, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, in the years 175 to 164 B.C., I would want to argue, though, that the presence of Daniel as a book among the Dead Sea Scrolls at the community of Qumran, you know much about that through history, and Dead Sea Scrolls seem to always be on the History Channel and Discovery Network, the important uh, archaeological find, uh, validating much of the historical evidence for and provenance for the Old Testament as we have it. The community at Qumran that, that collected all the Dead Sea Scrolls had among them large, uh, uh, multiple manuscripts of the book of Daniel. Uh, and they were living in and around the time, uh, I don't want to say ministering, they were just they were kind of a cloistered community, but around the time of Antiochus IV and around the time that some scholars argued the, the later part of Daniel was written. So I would want to say that the, that the presence of Daniel, the community of Qumran, is too quick for it to have been written late. 
The community at Qumran was all about, it was kind of a purity movement. They were trying to return to uh, um, uh, kind of the, the original intent of, uh, of God's will for his people through his word. And so the presence of Daniel among them means that they probably held to it as an authoritative book for a long time, leading to an earlier date in Daniel's day, not a later one. How would we summarize the book of Daniel? Well, Daniel's a book that records the lives, the trials, the faithfulness of Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. You know them better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are, the, those are their Babylonian forced names. Their actual Hebrew names are Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And Daniel records them as they're taken captive and placed in the service of the court in Babylon. The first six chapters of Daniel are historical in nature, describing major events in Daniel's life during his royal service. The first six chapters of Daniel are really memorable because of the stories that they tell, because of the history that they recount. The last six chapters of Daniel, though, are quite different. They're visionary in, uh, uh, in nature. They detail in apocalyptic fashion the fall of human kingdoms and the establishment of God's everlasting kingdom. Chapters 2 through 7 are interesting because they're not written in Hebrew like most of the Old Testament is. They're written in Aramaic, while the rest of the book of Daniel is written in Hebrew. There are a number of themes that drive or are woven through uh, the book of Daniel, but four that are worth your attention as you study the book on your own are these. First of all, God's sovereignty over history. Second, God's protection of His people. Third, God's sovereignty over kings and kingdoms specifically. And finally, steadfast faithfulness to God amid trial and threat. Every time we look at one of these books of the Bible, we want to locate it not just in, in the scope of human history and, and in, in the context of its author and to its original audience, but also in the scope of redemption history. What is God doing to redeem, or, or how do we see God developing His plan to redeem a people for His purposes from sin through His anointed deliverer? Redemption history flows through human history or could be imposed over human history in four main epics. Creation, as God creates all things from nothing by the power of His Word. The fall, Adam and Eve sinning and bringing into the world uh, sin and death and break of fellowship with God. Redemption, uh, which is fulfilled perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate, who lived the life without sin we could not live, who died on a cross for sins, the death that we deserved, taking our place there and giving to us His righteousness as we come to faith in Him and are rescued from our sin. And the final epoch of redemption history is yet to come. It's this epoch of consummation. When God will bring His kingdom to bear on earth and His King, Jesus the Christ, to reign there forever and ever with His people. Where does Daniel fit in all that? Well, historically, we know it certainly fits between those periods of like fall and the fulfillment of redemption. And that, that, that sort of arrow in between the two. If you have a note guide in front of you, you see those epics with arrows in between. We could place Daniel there in the arrow between fall and redemption, kind of thinking about it theologically. But we could also place Daniel's context in redemption history in that place between redemption and consummation, in that transitional period too, because there is in these visions that Daniel has a, 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 a looking forward to a perspective on things yet to come and a kingdom yet to be consummated even after God delivers his people. So Daniel is in some ways a, a book that lives in, in two places, if you will, in redemption history, in that space between fall and redemption, hope for rescue, hope for uh, for deliverance, and also in that place between 
knowing, uh, realizing the salvation of God and looking forward to his kingdom, which will come. Now, as you read Daniel, you might be confused if you try to read it just one way. Because Daniel is two types of literature stuck together in one book. Most of the books of the Bible are, are mostly one kind of literature. It's all historic narrative, or it's all prophecy, or it's all poetry. Daniel's split in half. Daniel is both historic narrative and apocalyptic literature. So when you're reading the historic narrative part of Daniel, chapters 1 through 6, you want to read it in order to uh, understanding. God's character and what his actions and the actions of his people teach about their relationship to one another. We're learning lessons about who God is, about who his people are, how he relates to his people through the historic lives and events of those who have gone before. But then you'll get to the second half of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12, and, and everything changes. Like you, you go from fairly easy to understand historic narrative to all of a sudden this, this very strange apocalyptic vision type literature where there's strange beasts and images and symbols floating all around and, and, and maybe having no idea what in the world to do with all of these things. Apocalyptic literature, the second half of Daniel is like this. Uh, parts of Zechariah are like this. The New Testament book of Revelation is like this. Apocalyptic literature is, is a type of literature that's infused with heavy symbolism and figurative language that is meant to illustrate in very dramatic ways how God is at work and will be at work in ways that we can't see with our human eyes throughout human history. Most apocalyptic literature has the end of all things for its final perspective, how God is going to wrap up and consummate all of history for His glory. So in reading Daniel, we need to ask two kinds of questions. We need to ask the historical narrative questions, and we need to ask the apocalyptic genre types of questions. Historic narrative types of questions are, what is this text telling me about God and His character? What does this text reveal about the character of, of God and his relationship to his people? Apocalyptic type questions are, what message did God intend to his people to understand by use of this symbolism and apocalyptic vision? And how should God's people today live in relationship to him, given what we've learned by reading it this way? Uh, I won't take time to outline Daniel for you. It's fairly easy to outline on your own. Chapters 1 through 6. Uh, all go together, sort of. Chapters 7 through 12 all go together in, in the type of literature that they are. The first half is historic narrative. The second half is visionary. You'll see that clearly when you read it on your own. But I'd like for us now to go ahead and dive into this book. And I want to begin with a reading from Scripture, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I invite you to stand with me as we honor God by reading His Word, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. There Daniel records, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This is God's word. You may be seated. Daniel, a book about kings and kingdoms. Amid the rise and fall of several kings and kingdoms, God demonstrates through Daniel's life a number of consistent truths. Even the structure of Daniel from chapters 1 through 7 highlights these truths through historic events and historic happenings in the lives of Daniel and his friends. First of all, we see God's protection of his people, a consistent theme in chapters 1, 3, and 6 of Daniel. 
Daniel opens at the end of the reign of the Jewish king Jehoiakim. The year was 605 BC and Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, had begun to flex his military muscles, besieged the city of Jerusalem. He didn't destroy it yet, but he had certainly put himself in control of it. As winning nations in battle do, Nebuchadnezzar took spoils for himself from that city. He took vessels for worship from the temple in Jerusalem, and he took educated men of noble birth to serve in his court. Among these were four young Jewish men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These four went immediately into a training program in Babylon to test their ability to serve. And with that program came a number of different perks for these young men. Food, wine, education in Chaldean language and literature. And if these four would do well in their training, they could make a rather comfortable life for, them, life for themselves in Babylon. All it would cost them is a little bit of compromise. The first compromise that the four were faced with was over food and drink. Whether because the food offered to the trainees in Babylon was offered to idols or whether it was outside Jewish dietary law, we're not certain, but we do know that Daniel and his friends refused to eat the king's food and drink the king's wine. We read in Daniel 1, eight through, verses 8 through 13, that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Verse 11 says, Then Daniel said to the steward, <clears throat> excuse me, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Daniel said, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of, you, of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and then deal with your servants according to what you see. At the end of the test, at the end of 10 days, we know that Daniel and his friends were found in better health. They were found in better appearance than the others who ate the king's food. They resisted one compromise and for that were rewarded by God, watched over by God, protected by God, and promoted to serve the king in his court. A second compromise comes in chapter 3, not a compromise of food and drink, but a compromise of worship. Nebuchadnezzar was historically an exceptionally successful Babylonian king. He restored Babylon to power and wealth on the world stage after centuries of waning influence. He built amazing cities and palaces. The hanging gardens of Babylon, built at his order, are among the ancient wonders of the world. His reputation exceeded even that of his appearance in the Bible. Nebuchadnezzar is well known in world history. Success like this, we know, can quickly go to a man's head. And in his pagan arrogance, Nebuchadnezzar had a gold image built as a testament to his greatness, or perhaps the greatness of one of his gods. And he commanded that whenever the trumpets blew in Babylon, everyone who heard it was required to bow and worship this golden statue in the middle of the city. Daniel's friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, would not defile themselves with the king's food, and they would not defile themselves with the king's worship. When confronted by the king and threatened with death for not worshiping at the foot of this golden statue, with confidence in God's protection, they respond to the king this way, Daniel 3, 16 and 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, the sentence for not worshiping, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Even if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
for their trouble to stand up to the king and refuse to compromise and worship to him and to the idol that he has put up, they are thrown into that fiery furnace. Heated seven times, hotter than it normally was, so hot that it burned up the men that opened the doors to it. But just as their bodies did not wither from their choice of food in the king's training, service training program, so also in the fire they did not burn, nor even was a hair of their head singed, as Daniel records. But rather, another person of angelic appearance is seen in the fire with them, and they're delivered alive. So amazing to the king was their survival through this ordeal that he declared, we read in chapter 3, verses 28 to 30, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. This is what Nebuchadnezzar says. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. His men are tempted to make a compromise on food. They're tempted to make a compromise of worship. A third instance of temptation to compromise comes in chapter 6 of Daniel, very similar to chapter 3. Here we are in the course of Daniel's life, two kings and a whole kingdom later, and Daniel is now serving in the court, not of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, but of Darius the Mede. Darius, arrogant as Nebuchadnezzar, is flattered by his staff and convinced to make a decree requiring everyone of Medea to pray only to him and not to any other god. Instead, Daniel went to his house every day, opened his window toward the desecrated city of Jerusalem hundreds of miles away, and prayed to the Lord not to Darius. It was not long before Daniel was ratted out by those who hated him, and he was thrown to be eaten alive in a den of lions. The next morning, after being thrown to the beasts, the king, Darius, who had had actually come to grow rather fond of Daniel prior to this incident, rushed to the den of the lions, and he called out to Daniel. And Daniel answered back. Daniel chapter 6, verses 21 and 22. Daniel said to the king from the lion's den, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me. But because I, was, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. In Daniel 7, verses 25 to 27, we read that King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. Enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. This God of Daniel, he delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. It's just a little food and drink, guys. Why make a fuss? It's just a statue, boys. There's no real God behind it. You can bow your knees, but still worship God in your heart. Come on, Daniel. A prayer to the king's no big deal. You can still pray privately. You can still pray silently to your own God. You're in exile here, don't you remember? You're a foreigner. You've got to go along if you want to get along in this place. And if you go along, Daniel, if you go along, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, it'll go well for you here. If you go along, to get along, you'll be comfortable. You'll rub shoulders with the king, for goodness sake. You'll have all that you need and all that you want. What other foreigner could have, could have that? Don't you see the opportunity that's before you? It's just a little compromise. This is the temptation that's offered to the young men. Give up your faithfulness to God, 
and you'll get a lavish life in Babylon. And the threat that is given to them is just as enticing, though negatively so. Give up your faithfulness to God, or you'll die the most horrible death that we can conjure up. A little compromise would get them a long way, spare their lives for certain, and much power and influence. And instead, these four refuse. They don't fight back with words or swords, but they stand firm with faith in God. The three thrown into the fiery furnace say to Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the known world at the time, even if God doesn't save us, O king, we're not going to serve you or your gods. You aren't likely in our present culture to be threatened with death if you won't compromise for your faith like these four, but you may be threatened with the death of your career. You may be threatened with the death of future opportunities, with the death of a pay increase, And all that you need to do to have all of these, to have a better career, to have a stable job, to get that raise, all you need to do is compromise a little. Just promise never to talk about Jesus at work. Just promise to be on call, even when you've scheduled to be in worship with God's people. Just promise not to give to religious groups or read your Bible at lunch break or pray in conspicuous ways. And you can have all these things. God protected His people especially these four, Daniel and his friends. God protected his people through the worst threats that many could imagine. And what these four experienced is not not necessarily a promise for every believer. Many have lost their lives for their faithfulness. Daniel's three friends know that their death is a reality. God has all power to save us, and we trust that he will. But even if he doesn't, we still won't worship you or your gods. It's not a promise that God will save us out of every hardship. But do you have confidence like these did in the God that you serve? That He will deliver you? And that even if He doesn't, He's still good? Still worth worshiping? Better still, friend, have you ever considered that God might use your steadfastness and godly wisdom to shape the minds of those who threaten you? Nebuchadnezzar and Darius both come away from God's deliverance of His people praising God and giving glory to God and making orders that no one ever gets to talk smack about this God. Not all hardship is meant to destroy us. Sometimes it's meant to lead others to see the wisdom of God, to see who He is through us. We see God's protection of His people in Daniel. We see also God's sovereignty over kings in Daniel, specifically in chapters 4 and 5. Chapters 4 and 5 of Daniel show in back-to-back accounts that God not only gives sovereign protection to His people, but also that God rules over the most powerful kings on the earth. In chapter 4, the arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, uh, the arrogant Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It's the second dream that he has in the course of Daniel. We'll look at the first one a little bit later. We'll take it out of order. It's a dream Nebuchadnezzar has of a great tree that all of the birds of the air nest in. And, once that, and, and all at once, in his dream, the tree is chopped down, and its stump is bound with iron, never to regrow. The king calls for Daniel to interpret the dream. Daniel's interpreted dreams before. He's good at this. So Nebuchadnezzar calls for Daniel, and Daniel brings the interpretation to the king. And the interpretation is a very bad one for Nebuchadnezzar. In the dream, Nebuchadnezzar is the tree. And the chopping down, the felling of the tree foreshadows his own fall from prominence. Now, some time goes by between the interpretation of the dream and what happens later, but one day the king is looking out on Babylon, maybe from the top of his palace, and boasting in royal fashion about all that he has made his kingdom to be. Oh, in all the world, who is there like me, Nebuchadnezzar says. And as soon as the words leave his mouth, 
Nebuchadnezzar is driven insane. And just as Daniel foretold from the dream, Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind and for a time loses his kingdom. After a time of wandering outside of the kingdom in the wild, Nebuchadnezzar has his reason restored to him. And in light of the dream that he had and now his his wisdom, his rationality restored to him, he declares in chapter 4, beginning in verse 34, we read, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me, Nebuchadnezzar says. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. In the very next chapter, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, is on the throne. And Belshazzar throws an idolatrous kegger of a party. He uses all of the vessels for worship that were taken from the temple in Jerusalem for all of his drinking games, defiling their God-directed use. And in the middle of the party that Belshazzar is throwing, a disembodied hand appears in the palace court and writes a message on a nearby wall. And everyone in the room sees it. The message is, meanie, meanie, tekel, parson. Afraid, confused, and certain of the supernatural origin of the message, Belshazzar calls for his dad's buddy who interprets dreams and things like this, Daniel. Daniel tells him the meaning. In chapter 5 of Daniel, verses 26 through 31, we read, this is the interpretation of the matter, meanie, which is a denomination of currency in the day. In the day. Meanie, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel another denomination of currency. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, Parson, another final uh, currency of the day. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. How often are you tempted to think that you are really somebody? That you are especially talented, particularly gifted? That you have a a certain power to to, to determine your own destiny? I'm in charge of my life. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. In their pride, these kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, father and son, set themselves above God in their own minds. And at less than the snap of a finger, all that they have is taken from God to demonstrate that He is King of heaven, that He is Lord of kings, and that these most powerful men in all the world are but nothing in comparison to Him. Daniel, by contrast, even for all of his success and promotion in these various kingdoms among foreign empires, Daniel demonstrates the opposite of Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, or or, uh, Belshazzar. Daniel demonstrates instead a godly humility and a recognition even of his own sinfulness and his own need of grace. 
In the course of an extended prayer of lamentation for the sins of Israel, Daniel prays in Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 8 and continuing through 19. He says, To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his ways, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. In verse 19, Daniel says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now, Daniel is a godly man, but he's far from perfect. He's a sinner, just like his father before him and his father before that. Even as the right-hand man to kings of empires, Daniel knows that his sin puts him under the righteous hand of God's wrath. But rather than exalting himself against God, Daniel humbles himself before God. He admits his sin. He pleads for God's grace. Daniel's no different from the kings in this story, except in that he knows his sin and he confesses it. The great hope of the gospel is here in the character of God, that the character that Daniel recognizes, that God is a God who forgives sins when we confess them to Him and seek His grace, that, that God's forgiveness comes not because He thinks little of our sin, but because He thinks much of His own Son, Jesus the Christ, who gave His sinless and righteous life on the cross in the place of sinners. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake He made Him, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we, may, we might become the righteousness of God. Daniel demonstrates a knowledge of the truth that the Apostle John uh, displays in his first letter, 1 John 1, 8 through 10, when he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If God can show his sovereign power over the mighty kings of Babylon, friend, he can and will certainly humble you in your pride today. But conversely, if you'll humble yourself before Him today, confess your sins, trust in Christ, your righteous substitute, then He will, by His grace, lift your head and make you clean from all your sins. God protects His people. God demonstrates His sovereignty over kings and kingdoms and, and even over individuals and calls all of us to repent of sin and lean on Him, trust in Him for deliverance. Third, in chapters 2 and 7, God shows His sovereignty not just over kings, but over their entire kingdoms, over, over empires that would last far longer than even just the life of one king. In the last of parallel sections in Daniel, God demonstrates by the means of visions that He is not only sovereign over individual kings, but also over kingdoms and empires. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It's the first dream that he has. It's a dream of a statue with a golden head, a silver chest, a bronze middle and legs, and feet that are mixed of iron and clay. In his dream, a mountain comes from heaven, a mountain that is not cut by human hands, and smashes the statue, and then the mountain fills the entire earth. Nebuchadnezzar is distraught by this dream, and he seeks one of his wise men to interpret it. He's not going to tell them the dream or any of the details of it so that those who he's asking to interpret it are not inclined to lie to him about its meaning. No one knows the dream. No one knows the meaning of the dream except for Daniel, to whom God has made both things known, both the dream and its meaning. Daniel is sure to glorify God before the king, Nebuchadnezzar, when he gives his interpretation of the dream, saying this in Daniel 2, beginning in verse 20, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. 
He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Then in Daniel chapter 7, there's another dream, not by a king, but by Daniel. Daniel has a vision of his own. It's not of a statue of four parts, gold, silver, bronze, and iron and clay, but rather Daniel sees four beasts that all come together out of the sea. The first beast is like a lion, the second is like a bear, the third is like a leopard, and the fourth is a ferocious beast with iron teeth that defies explanation. Immediately, this vision is interrupted by another vision. It's a vision of God called here the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. In the Ancient of Days, the Lord is sitting on His throne in heaven, and we read Daniel chapter 7 beginning in verse 9. Daniel says, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked. Then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, the horn is another image, a horn on one of the heads of the beasts, And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, Daniel continues, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. It means one with a human appearance. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. The meanings of these visions, one by Nebuchadnezzar, one many years later by Daniel, the meanings of these two visions are the same. The four parts of the statue and the four beasts represent four kingdoms, four empires. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, they are successive empires, Babylon, Medea, Persia, Greece, Rome. In Daniel's, they are very likely the same. The mountain that comes out of heaven and destroys the statue signifies, as we read in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, that in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It will break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. In the same way, Daniel sees one like a son of man in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, having a human appearance who is himself given dominion and glory and an everlasting kingdom. The visions are the same. To be sure, by these visions, God is demonstrating that no matter how powerful they may appear, every human kingdom is temporary. No matter how many centuries they may span, no republic is permanent. No matter what they build, no matter what they invent, every human government will be unmade by God. It's no coincidence that the Son of Man that Daniel sees is the favorite title that Jesus the Christ uses for himself in the Gospels. The description of the risen Jesus in Revelation 1 combines imagery from Daniel 7 uh, of both the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man to say that Jesus is one and the same. He is the Ancient of Days who sits on the throne and He is the one with appearance like a Son of Man who has all dominion and power and authority. He's the one who receives it all. He is God of very God. Jesus Himself says in Matthew 24, verse 30, when He's speaking about what will come before the end of all things, He says to his disciples, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
Jesus, the Son of Man, Son of God, died at the cross for sins, was buried, and raised again. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Jesus, the Son of Man, is reigning today over His kingdom. Not a kingdom of this world, not a kingdom of flesh and bone, but a kingdom of people who have been saved by His grace. A king, and, and one day, this king will return. And when he does, he will topple. Like that mountain in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he will topple every man-made monarchy, every republic, every oligarchy, every parliament, and in their place he will establish his righteous kingdom that will last forever. The hope of the gospel, friends, is not just salvation from sin, though it's at least that. The hope of the gospel is also the confident expectation of a coming king who is mightier, but also gentler, more powerful, but more righteous, completely divine, but ever near to his people, Jesus the Christ, the returning king. God protects his people in times of tempted compromise. God demonstrates his sovereignty over kings and over kingdoms. But in chapters 8 through 12 of Daniel, which are probably the hardest parts of Daniel to read, honestly, we see that God demonstrates his own sovereignty over history over all of it, not just a few kings, not just a few kingdoms, but over everything. The final five chapters of Daniel are full of head-spinning details and even more visions. Chapter 8 features a vision of a ram and a goat, the goat symbolizing Greece, who would overtake the two-horned ram of Medea Persia during the military campaign of Alexander the Great. In chapter 9, after praying, Daniel receives a word from the angel Gabriel that at the end of Judah's exile, after 70 years in exile in Babylon, that, that the end of that will not be the end of their difficulty. Seventy years of exile will give way to seventy weeks of years of trouble. And during that time, there will be a prince, a king, a ruler, who will rise to desolate Jerusalem again and desecrate its sacrifices. Most scholars understand this to be a prophecy about the coming Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, who sacrificed pigs on the altar in the temple of Jerusalem and was ultimately resisted by Judas Maccabeus in and around the year 164-65 B.C., Chapter 10 of Daniel is a word of encouragement to Daniel from another angelic messenger, who in chapter 11 tells Daniel more about this prince who would rise against God's people. This one is an especially wicked one. We read in chapter 11, beginning in verse 36, that, the king, that this king shall do as he wills. He'll exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and he'll speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. There's been considerable debate as to whether this prophecy in Daniel 11 is about Antiochus Epiphanes or another yet future antagonist of God's people. But either way, he will make their lives exceedingly difficult, even deadly. But Daniel is promised in chapter 12 the only picture of resurrection hope from the dead to eternal life in the Old Testament. Amid all of this disaster that is coming to God's people at some point in the future, Daniel is given this vision of hope, Daniel 12, verses 2 and 3. God says to him, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Many and smarter men and women than me have poured over Daniel's visions in the last chapters of this book through over the, over the course of the last 2,000 years to understand the detailed meaning of all of these visions and what the weeks are and who this one is that will persecute God's people. And even after all that, after all those years, there's still much disagreement about these details, but there is no disagreement about the message of these visions. Kings and kingdoms will rise and fall. 
Years and decades and centuries will come and go. Wicked rulers will rise against God and His people, but God remains sovereign over all of it. No king is established but by God's decree. No moment slips out of God's hand unattended. No God-defying demagogue will ever escape His wrath. And no saint saved by His grace will be forgotten or left in the ground on the last day. The message of Daniel The main message of Daniel, the last chapters, is this, that God is sovereign over every epoch of human history. His will is at work, and His kingdom will be established forever. Now, if you read Daniel and you obsess over the meaning of these visions and the meaning of these 70 weeks of seven years or whatever, but you miss the message of the whole book that God is in sovereign control of all things, you will have missed what God is most clearly intending to communicate, that He's in charge. He's got it all under control. Kings will rise and fall. Kingdoms will come and go. Centuries will come and pass. But God sees and knows all of it. If you find yourself frustrated that you cannot answer perfectly every question about these visions in Daniel, join the club. And also count yourself in good company with Daniel. In Daniel chapter 12, verses 8 through 13, read this. Daniel says, I heard all this vision, but I did not understand. So if you read Daniel 8 through 12, And you're going, I read it, but I don't understand it. You're right there with Daniel. I heard, but I did not understand. And I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise will understand. Verse 13, the Lord says, but go your way till the end and you shall rest and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Even Daniel was told by God, I've shown you all you need to know. Go your way in faith. Find rest at the end of days. Oh, Christian, it is so important for us to remember that God is God and we are not. Might I say that again? It is so important for us to remember that God is God and we are not. That just because He is all-knowing does not mean that we must be all-knowing too. He has given us what we need most in order to find rest at the end of days. To know that He guards the souls of those who trust His Son. To know that He humbles the proud and exalts the humble and repentant. To know that He is bringing an everlasting kingdom where those who have been redeemed by Christ through faith in Him will meet our Savior to live forever with Him. And to know that nothing in all of history, no matter how chaotic or how orderly, no matter how turbulent or peaceful, nothing in all of history, no matter how frightening or encouraging, is out of His sovereign control. Christ Jesus, the Son of Man, who gave His life to save sinners, sinners who turn from their sin and place their lives in His hands as Lord and King, He will return in God's way and in God's time to crush the idols of arrogant men to destroy the beasts of godless oppression, and to bring to himself all whom he has saved by his grace. We may not know in high-definition detail how it will all look when it happens, but we will know, well, we do know the end of the story. If you've heard the promise of his salvation and the warning of his coming today from Daniel and from all of Scripture, I invite you, turn to him with trust for what is still unclear and rejoice with those whose heart's cry is that of the end of Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. God shows his sovereignty over kings and kingdoms. He is the one true king with the one, with the one true kingdom and the one true kingdom citizenry, which is composed not of a particular ethnicity or political demographic, but all those who have loved his son and waited for his appearing.
Are you a part of that kingdom? Are you a servant of the one true king? If not, I invite you today, place your faith in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and place your faith, faith in the God of the cosmos who gave his son to save you. Let's pray together.